Nicholas Curea studied ancient and medieval history at the University of London and currently works as a senior researcher at the Cyprus Research Center in Nicosia. He has published extensively on the Lusinian Cyprus with a particular focus on its commercial and ecclesiastical history. Some of his published works include a number of monographs, including the minorities of Cyprus, uh, along with the translation of the Chronicle of Amadi with Dr. Peter Edbury, and most recently, the Burgesses of Lusinian Cyprus. It is a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Nice to be with you as well. Awesome. Uh, I guess to start us off, is it possible you can give us a brief overview of the political changes uh, that leads into the Frankish period? Well, first, in 30 BC, Cyprus was annexed to the Roman Empire following Octavian's defeat of Mark Antony, and it remained a Roman province on and off right until 1191 because the so-called Byzantine Empire is really a continuation of the Roman Empire in the East. The Byzantines never called themselves Byzantines. They called themselves Romans, even though they were ethnically Greeks, Armenians, Albanians, Slavs. They considered themselves politically the ends of the Roman Empire. They were. In the classical period, before Christianity, the Greeks called themselves Hellenes, like they do now. They Hellenes. But when Christianity came along, there was a split among the Greeks. Some of the Greeks embraced Christianity. Other Greeks didn't like it because they believed in the 12 gods, as far as they were concerned that Jesus Christ was a Jewish troublemaker who was uh, you know, crucified, and they didn't want to become Christians. The Greeks who didn't want to become Christians continued to call themselves Hellenes, Hellenes, and so the Greeks who did become Christians were embarrassed to call themselves this, and they called themselves Romans. And so once the Greeks or most of them became Christians, they continued to call themselves Romans right on, up until the um, uh, early 19th century. And I mean, even now in Greek popular music, the word Romeos coming from Romeos is still used. So Cyprus was part of the Roman and Byzantine Empire. And what drew me to the signal of Cyprus was that it is the only long period in the island's history when it was an independent state. Before the Lusignan period, Cyprus was part of the Roman and later Byzantine Empire. It was part of the Amats. And the Empire of the Ptolemies, the successor of Alexander the Great. Before that, it was part of the Persian Empire, and then before that, it was part of the Egyptian, the Assyrian Empires. After the Lusignan period, it became a Venetian colony. Then it became an Ottoman province. The independence it acquired in 1960 was not real independence. It had and still has three guarantor powers. That's uh, and, uh, one guarantor power has a uh, basis, the British, another guarantor power, Turkey, occupies 37% of the United territory. And the third guarantor power in Greece, which uh, did a coup in 1974. So for me, the Lusignan period is very interesting because it's a period where for nearly three centuries, Cyprus was independent. Now, the fact that Cyprus was independent doesn't necessarily mean that the majority of the population ruled. Then, as now, the Greeks were a majority, but the rulers of Cyprus were Franks. Now, these Franks came in part from uh, the Latin states, the Frankish states founded in the um, 12th century as a result of the Crusades, and in part they came straight over from Western Europe. And obviously the first generation came from abroad, but successive generations, the second and third, were born and brought up in Cyprus. And so they were Cypriot. They weren't Greek Cypriots, they weren't Armenian or Maronites, but they were Frankish Cypriots. And they actually called themselves Cypriots in some of the chronicles, notably the chronicle of uh, Philippe de Roi which is actually called in French, Les Gestes de Chipois, the deeds of the Cypriots. So very early on, the Franks, even if they didn't identify with the 
the majority Greek culture or, or any of the other cultures, they identified with the island. They considered themselves separate. And this interested me because even though it was a small kingdom, and even though they had troubles with bigger neighbors, such as the Genoese and the Mamluks, they were able on and off to survive. And uh, you know, that is quite a feat. And the other thing is that even though you did have uh, religious and interethnic tensions, generally there was a, 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 a peace on the islands. And when, where there uh, wasn't peace, it was punctuated either by foreign invasions, the peace was interrupted by foreign invasions, or by civil wars. So the Lusignans, despite their small numbers, did manage to rule the Greek majority population and the large number of Eastern Christians without any significant revolts. And you know, that's quite remarkable. The other thing that's remarkable is that Cyprus really was multicultural because you had uh, Franks from Western Europe and from the um, Latin states of uh, um, Palestine and Syria. You had the Greeks, you had Armenians, you had the various groups of uh, Syrian Christians, you had Copts of Egypt. So it was a multiracial society in the medieval period. And uh, of course, they didn't understand multiracialism the way we understand it in the late 20th and 21st centuries. You did have dislikes and tensions, but there was a remarkable absence of interracial violence. And you know, that is remarkable. The other thing that's remarkable is that in the fields of art and architecture, you had a lot of cultural fusion, in the, especially in iconography, in, uh, in, uh, in architecture, especially church architecture. St. George of the Greeks in Famagusta is a, 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 a astonishing blend of um, Gothic and uh, Greek Orthodox architecture. And um, you also have the influence of Armenian and Eastern uh, Christians, which is uh, shows in the iconography and also in the production of manuscripts. You have um, uh, the Chronicles of Cyprus. Some of them are written in Old French, others are written in Italian, and uh, some are written in the Cypriot Greek, which uh, during this period becomes a written medium. Another thing that is extraordinary is that Cyprus is alone in the Greek world in having a medieval war code written in colloquial Cypriot Greek. Although you do have medieval Greek literature uh, consisting mainly of uh, poems and uh, some uh, prose compositions. Cyprus is unique in this period in that you have law code actually translated into medieval Cypriot Greek. So there's tremendous cultural diversion. And there's also, of course, a lot of Latin um, uh, correspondence because the papal correspondence, which is thousands of letters, is all written in Latin. And you also have notarial deeds um, uh, um, prepared by public notaries for the commercial activities, mainly uh, contracts for the export of goods, for sales, for purchases. And all these are also prepared in Latin. So it's a multilingual society with Latin, mm -hmm. Italian, um, Old French, Greek, Armenian, and Syriac, all um, 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 rubbing shoulders. I want to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, and and you also said that this was a multicultural society, which we're going to spend, I, I hope, quite a bit of time discussing that. Earlier, you said that the the Franks would come to. Oh, sorry, the word Franks here has a broader designation. It really refers to people of West European origin. Spanish, French, of the Roman Catholic faith. They were all called Franks. It does not refer to the Frankish tribes that overran the Roman Empire. Would one of their markers be their use of the French language or would, say, Catalan, that be, uh, would they be considered Frankish as well, even though they would have spoken Catalan? They would be still considered Frankish. The British, the English would be considered Frankish, so would the Italians. The markers were not really linguistic. I mean, you could say that they were Latin-based languages, okay? Mm -hmm. Like um, Italian, French, Catalan. 
But the real marker was that they geographically came ultimately from Western Europe. That is to say from the uh, countries in the west of Germany and Italy, including Germany. So sometimes I see the word Latin being used as, uh, as an, you know, for a lack of a better word, as an ethnic identifier. And then other times I see Frankish. So what's the difference between the two? The difference is this. Byzantium, the Byzantines considered themselves to be the continuators of the Roman Empire. And in fact, they were, because the word Byzantine was invented by French historians in the 17th century because they considered the Eastern Roman Empire to be degenerate and debased. And mm-hmm. so they wanted a word that would distinguish it from the classical Rome. The um, inhabitants of the Roman Empire called themselves Romae, Romae in Greek, and in Latin, that would be Romanus. However, the Byzantines, or Romans as they call themselves, had a problem. If they were Romans, what were they going to call the inhabitants of Rome in Western Europe? They couldn't mm-hmm. call them Romans because they themselves were Romans. So they called them Latins. So the word Latin in the context of West Europeans of the Roman Catholic faith was actually invented by the Byzantines because they want to distinguish between themselves, they were the real Romans, and the others happened to be Latins. But this word was actually picked up by modern historians as a very convenient designation for West Europeans in the medieval period. Now, I realize it can be confusing for people who think of Latins as uh, the inhabitants of the area around ancient Rome, and uh, it was simply a word which the Byzantines used to describe the West Europeans, and which modern historians have also used to describe West Europeans of the Middle Ages in the Eastern Mediterranean. So Latins really describes West Europeans. I mean, the marker is uh, um, geographical, they come from Western Europe, but above all, it's religious. They are Roman Catholics. All Latins have to be Roman Catholics, apart from, of course, you do have some heretics like the Cathars and the Waldensians, but they don't come to Cyprus. They don't impinge on the Latin presence, the West European presence in the East Mediterranean. Now, you did mention that at some point, the the Fra- well, the Franks living on Cyprus would call themselves Xihua, which yes. of course yes. refers to, to we would say Kypriotes in, in medieval Cypriot, medieval Greek. Now, was, was this inadequate though in describing their identity beyond their connection to the island? Well, as you probably know, in modern Cyprus, present day Cyprus, there is no Cypriot that doesn't have a prefix. You have Greek Cypriots, Turkish Cypriots, Maronite Cypriots, Armenian Cypriots, and Latin Cypriots. Okay? There are no Cypriot Cypriots for Budorim. Now, in the medieval times, it was very similar because the travelers who come to Cyprus, they refer to Greeks, Franks, Copts, Syrians, um, uh, Jacobites. So you have various ethnic and religious groups. And that also depends on language. I mean, if you look at Greek sources from Cyprus, the Cypriots or the Greek Cypriots call themselves Romans, like the Byzantines, throughout. Okay? Mm-hmm. And they call the Franks either Franks or even Latins. Okay? And uh, the Armenians are called um, Arme- Armenians, Armenians, and uh, the Syrians are called um, uh, Syrians. So you have different ethnic groups, but um, uh, the um, uh, people who Funnily enough, you see the designation Cypriot most are the Franks. In the Chronicles, they call themselves They actually call themselves Cypriots. Of course, they knew that they spoke French. And Stephen de Lusignan, who was a member of the Lusignan royal house in the Venetian times, by the rich town of Constantinople, the Venetian colony, he says that the Lusignans and the Lusignan nobility identified most of all with France because that's where most of them ultimately came from. 
So the link with uh, Western Europe, and especially France, was never completely separate. Indeed, only a limited number of Greeks, Armenians, and Syrians joined the Nubias. But the Franks of Cyprus also identified at least geographically with Cyprus, the Cyprus. The Assizes of Cyprus were originally written in Old French in the Kingdom of Jerusalem, and they were compiled, cobbled together, if you like, by the middle of the 13th century. By the early 14th century, they have been translated into Cypriot Greek, and the ethnic designations are very interesting. In the French version, the Greeks are called Greek, you know, Greeks, mm -hmm. but in the Greek version, they're called Romans, okay? And so in the Greek versions, the Greeks call themselves Romans, and the remainder of the um, population are called either Franks or Syrians or Armenians. Um, uh, the Muslims are known as Saracens. Right. The Egyptians are known as Misirides because Misir is the Egyptians for Egypt. Yeah. And so you do have ethnic designations, but sometimes they switch from language to a language. I mean, that's why even though um, uh, the Greeks are called Greeks, um, um, uh, by the uh, actual you know, the, the Latins, uh, the West Europeans. And sometimes in the, um, uh, during the, uh, in the time of the Congress, the Greeks were called Griffons. Now, the Griffon was um, an animal that was uh, half eagle, half lion. It was supposed to be very aggressive and rapacious. And because at that time, in the, in the late 12th century, there was a lot of hostility between the Latins and the Greeks, the Latins actually called the Greeks Griffons. And uh, they have references to the, the wicked Greeks and how they are schismatics, but now mm -hmm. that Cyprus has been conquered, the Church of Cyprus will be returned to the bosom of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is also uh, applicable in a, a wider context. There's a castle in the Peloponnese in Greece near the village of Akoba, and the name of the castle is Mate Griffon, which means Greek killer. And there's another castle in Sicily, where you also had a lot of Greeks in the Middle Ages, with exactly the same name. So Griffin, the name Griffin was used in the late 12th and early 13th century as an aggressive designation of Greeks. I mean, it was a, you know, a racist, if you like. But later, as the Greeks were conquered and they became more integrated into the Frankish states, they were simply called Greeks by the Franks, and they always continued to call themselves Romans, Greeks themselves, both on Cyprus and elsewhere. Now, in the Byzantine period, before we get to Richard the Lionheart's uh, conquering of Cyprus, was this a, homo a homogenous group um, uh, of Romans, for um, to use the appropriate term, in Cyprus at the time? Or were there a variety of, of different groups before 1191? Cyprus was never homogeneous, not even from the dawn of time. When the Greeks settled in Cyprus in around 1100 BC, the Phoenicians settled there at the same time. And you had the native Cypriots, the so-called Ethiocypriots. And uh, in the second century BC, they were joined by Jews. So Cyprus from very early on, even before the time of Jesus Christ, was uh, multi-racial. And uh, during the Byzantine period, the Byzantines deliberately implanted colonies of Armenians and Syrians in Cyprus, especially Maronites, because they were considered good warriors. And uh, so you had Greeks, Armenians, Syrians, and later in the 12th century, Venetian merchants started trading with Cyprus. They started buying up uh, land to um, uh, um, produce um, uh, wine and, uh, um, uh, and uh, grain, you know, wheat and barley for export to uh, Venice and other in, uh, West European countries. So you had Western settlement. When Richard arrived in Cyprus, he landed in Limassol, and he was welcomed by Western, mainly Venetian merchants. So even before the conquest, Cyprus was 
had various ethnic groups. The Greeks were the majority, but they coexisted with other groups. The, um, the Armenians, the Syrians, small Jewish community, and the, of course, Franks, the Venetians. So let's let's start just to give some context to listeners about the the political changes that are happening at this time. Now, I, I definitely wanted to I want to talk mostly about the, the the cultural and the social changes uh, that mark this period. But let's just give some context. Richard the Lionheart, he's on his way to participate in the Third Crusade, and the ship of his wife, I believe, is blown off course and ends up in Cyprus. Can you just give us a little overview of what happens politically at this period and how Cyprus falls out of control of the Byzantines or the Eastern Roman Empire and lands ultimately in, in the hands of Guy de Lusion? Yes, well, actually, Cyprus fell out of control of the Byzantine Empire in 1184, seven years before Richard arrived. What happened in 1184? is that the Caninian dynasty in Constantinople was overthrown by someone called Isaac Angelus, and a new dynasty, the Angeli, were established in its place. Constantinople was the capital of the Byzantine Empire, also known as New Rome. Now, in Cyprus, there was a governor called Isaac Caninus, of course, being a member of the Caninian royal family, which had been overthrown. He didn't like the Angelo, and so he proclaimed himself emperor. He succeeded. He broke away from the Byzantine Empire. And the Byzantines sent a fleet to conquer Cyprus from him. What did he do? In order to stop the Byzantines, he enlisted the services of the Sicilians, a Sicilian admiral called Margaritone. And in a battle that took place um, off Cyprus, the Byzantine fleet was destroyed. Now, unfortunately for Isaac, his Sicilian allies also happened to be enemies of King Richard I. Because of that, Richard didn't like Isaac. And generally, in the chronicles, the chroniclers, the Norman chroniclers who wrote the chronicles of the time and, and related to the conquest of Cyprus, also didn't like Isaac. They said that he had, uh, he was a great friend of Saladin, the Muslim conqueror of uh, much of the kingdom of Jerusalem. That Isaac and Saladin had mixed their blood in friendship. That Isaac hated Latins; he really loved killing them. Basically, they gave Isaac a very bad press. And so, when Richard landed. The idea of conquering Cyprus was already in his head because he landed forcibly. I mean, um, apparently, um, Isaac mistreated um, uh, Berengaria his, um, uh, um, uh, and uh, um, uh, his uh, you know, wife, um, who landed in Cyprus before him. And he may have mistreated her because he was an ally of the Sicilians who didn't like the English. Anyway, Isaac, um, uh, Richard landed forcibly in Limassol. His fleet defeated the uh, uh, grand forces Isaac had in Limassol. And so Isaac's forces were forced to retreat. At that time, Isaac had the Greek and Armenian uh, troops uh, at his uh, disposal, and they fought various battles uh, with Isaac. And, uh, King Richard's forces fought with Isaac uh, um, in the hinterland of Limassol and uh, um, in the area of uh, um, just south of Nicosia. And in the end, uh, they were able to conquer Cyprus in one month. Isaac uh, went to um, uh, the castle of Posavento, uh, and um, he was taken in their chains. So um, uh, the, uh, Richard conquered Cyprus from Isaac in uh, one month. Now, Isaac, of course, was not a Byzantine government by that time, he was a usurp. And when Richard conquered Cyprus, the Byzantine emperor said that he should return Cyprus to Byzantium because after all, it had been a Byzantine province. And uh, of course, Richard had no um, intention of doing this. He was also told by the King of France that since they had agreed that any conquest they made, should be shared by one half. 
half of Cyprus should be given to the King of France, Philip Augustus. This again Richard refused. He said that those conquests only refer to the Holy Land, and since he conquered Cyprus by himself, he was going to keep it. In fact, he didn't keep it. He sold it first to the Templars. The Templars kept it for eight months, and when the Greeks revolted against them, they rebelled against them on Easter Day of 1192 because they didn't like the new taxes the Templars imposed. The Templars crushed the Greek rebellion, but because there were few, they decided they didn't want Cyprus. They gave it back to Richard, and he sold it the second time to Guy de Lusignan. Now, Guy de Lusignan was the dispossessed king of Jerusalem. The uh, Franks in Jerusalem had been defeated by Salahuddin at the Battle of Hapin, and the Muslims conquered Jerusalem and much of the uh, hinterland of the Frankish states. The Franks were able to hang on to some coastal areas like Acre and Tyre and Beirut and, uh, and Antioch, but the hinterland remained Muslim. And so because Guy was a king who did not have a kingdom, he became Lord of Cyprus. He actually bought Cyprus from um, Richard. And later his brother, Amory, became the first king of Cyprus in 1197. He was crowned officially by Pope Celestine III, who sent a representative, Bishop Conrad of Hildesheim, to crown Amory. And this bishop also crowned Leo, king of Armenia. Now this was very important. It meant that from 1197 onwards, there were two Latin kingdoms in the Eastern Mediterranean, the kingdom of Cilicia and Armenia and the kingdom of Cyprus. The kingdom of Cilicia and Armenia lasted until 1375 when it was overrun by the Mamluks, but the kingdom of Cyprus lasted until 1474 when the Venetians took over, and the Venetians held it until 1571. So the Lusignans and the Venetians held Cyprus for 380 years. It's a very, very long time. Um, we can we can assume that there's going to be changes that happens to Cyprus uh, when it when it gets handed over essentially to um, to the West. Uh, now Neophytos the recluse, and that's uh, Saint Ios um, Neophytos. He writes that at this time there is a um, a depopulation of Cyprus, and uh, presumably I would think, you know, this is something that's overstated. What is he referring to? Is this true? Is, was there a depopulation or was this more of um, uh, a change of upper class uh, control? When Richard conquered Cyprus, because a lot of the nobles of Cyprus didn't like Isaac anyway, they came over to Richard's side and they asked Richard if they could be ruled and according to the laws of Emmanuel Caninus, the last Byzantine emperor who held Cyprus. And Richard said okay, but he made them shave their beards to show that they were now, you know, under Latin uh, rule, and he uh, made them pay taxes. But what happened is that when Richard left Cyprus to find the Muslims in Palestine, there was a revolt, okay? This revolt was crushed by Richard's lieutenant, Robert of Turner. Then, when the Templars took Cyprus, there was a second revolt. And after the second revolt, the nobles of Cyprus left for Constantinople. Why did they leave for Constantinople? It was because the Byzantine nobles of Cyprus were not native Cypriots. They all originated from Constantinople, the capital of the Byzantine Empire. And when the Templars took Cyprus and later handed it over to Guy Lusignan, they realized they had no future there and they actually migrated. So the Cypriots who leave Cyprus are the noble upper class who are of Byzantine origin anyway. Now, who is left? The people who are left are, of course, the Cypriot peasants, 
the Greeks, the Armenians, the Assyrians, and also you have some Greek landowners and the Syrian landowners who are not as rich and powerful as the Byzantine landowners, but they stay on Cyprus and they continue to stay on Cyprus throughout the period of Lucignan rule. So you don't have a Greek aristocracy or a Syrian aristocracy, but you do have independent Greek and Syrian landowners. So no, I mean, the migration is overstated. This ruling class that left Cyprus, they're called Archondes, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. It means lords. It's a Byzantine term for lords. Uh, and, and what happens afterwards? How dissimilar was the governing system in, in the Byzantine times different from or the same to the feudal system that's later introduced? Because uh, all of a sudden we have an emerging of different designations. I believe we have and you can correct me if I'm mispronouncing this, Barigi and Franco Mati. Is that different from what existed prior to the Franks, or is it more or less the same? Well, you have the Pariki and some independent peasants in Byzantine. Pariki are the serfs. They have to work two or three days a week on their lord's land. They can work for the other days on their own land, but they have to give one third or one half of the produce of their own land to their lords. Now, the Franco Mati, or the free peasants, they don't have to work on their own lands, on the Lord's lands. They have their own lands, but they have to give 25% of the income of their own lands, the produce, to the Lords. Okay? So that's the difference between the Parakee and the Franco Mati. Now, on Cyprus, when the um, uh, Latins conquer it, the uh, first Richard, and then the, when the Guy de Lusignan becomes the um, uh, Lord of Cyprus, there are three main types of land. You have the so-called imperial land, okay, which is the land of the Byzantine emperors. You have the land of the Archondes, and you have the land of the Greek Orthodox Church. Those are the three biggest groups of landowners. But what the Eusignans do is they confiscate practically all this land, and it is given as fiefs to an incoming group of Latin nobles, of mainly French, Italian, uh, and Italian origin, okay? And these nobles, are given fiefs in return for giving so many knights as a service. Because according to the um, laws of the Lusignan kingdom, the um, nobles had to serve the king for something like three months a year when the king went to war. And so they have land in return for providing military service. And the more land they have, the more soldiers, the more knights they have to provide. Now, what happens? The Greek church only keeps a very small part of its land. Most of its land is confiscated, given to the Latin nobles. But when the Latin Church of Cyprus is founded in 1196, they are resentful because they say that all the lands of the Greek Church should be given to the Latin Church. The nobles and the kings do not agree, but you get two compromises in 1220 and 1222, where the Latin Church gave, gets some of the lands of the Greek Church, not by any means all. So the Latin Church owns some lands, the Latin nobles own a lot of lands, and the king owns quite a bit of land as well because he has his own knights and retainers. So that is the new land system. But where you have continuity with the Byzantine system is that Cyprus is primarily an agricultural economy, even though you get some um, diversification, which I will discuss later on. And the other similarity is that whereas in Europe, the great lords can build their own castles and they have the right of high justice. The right of high justice means that they have their own courts which can uh, pronounced death sentences or maiming 
on unruly uh, you know, serfs. In Cyprus, all the justice belongs to the king. The, uh, even the biggest lords, you have two titular princes and three titular counts do not have rights of high justice. They, so all the justice is centralized. So in that sense, there's continuity with Byzantine period. Where, of course, you don't have continuity is that under the Byzantines, Cyprus was a province. It was a province of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Whereas under the Lusignans, it becomes an independent kingdom. So it becomes a state. I want to read something. Um, and this is from Leon Dios Majeras. Yes. And I'm going to read it in Greek, and then I'm going to read it in English. It's translation. Because this really talks to a really important change that's happening in Cyprus at, at the time. And this is what he writes. And again, for those listening, this is uh, this is medieval Greek, but not just medieval Greek. This is uh, the, the emergence of the Cypriot dialect. And some of its phonology might actually sound familiar to the modern Cypriot ear. He writes, Apototes arkepsa namathanum frankica, que varvarisan da romaica, osion que simeron, que grafumen frankica, que romaica, oti iston gosmon den ixevrun inda sindijanomen. The translation there is, and when the Latin period began, men began to learn French and their Greek became barbarous, just as it is today when we write both French and Greek in such a way that no one in the world can say what our language is. I love that line because it's, 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 it's a very interesting to learn that the language, uh, uh, you know, the church Greek, if, if I can use that word, has changed and it's been impacted irrevocably by by the presence of the Franks. Now, how much French was really spoken amongst um, the peasants at the time? Was this a language that was really isolated to the nobility? And vice versa, were, were the nobles in any way familiar with Greek? And how much interaction would they actually have with serfs, for lack of a better word? Well, the answer to the question is this. The kings of Cyprus, the Frankish kings and the nobles, had Greek wetness, wetness, you know, sort of uh, suckled them and, uh, and brought them up as babies, and they would have learned to speak Greek from these wetnesses. So they would have spoken colloquial Cypriot Greek, most of them to some degree. Now, most of the Greeks and the Syrians would not have spoken any French or Latin, but those Greeks working, and the Syrians working in the chancery, that is to say the Royal, the royal Accounts Office that collected the taxes and managed the royal finances, would have learned French. So a very small proportion of Greeks and Syrians working in the royal chancery and uh, generally um, uh, perhaps a few in the army, the Sigmund army, would have learned French, Old French. But most Greeks would have continued and Syrians would have continued speaking their own languages and the French nobility would have sp spoken colloquial Cypriot Greek from their wet nurses, I mean, to some degree. I think you have to be very careful Cyprus was conquered by the Latins in 1191. In 1204, the Byzantine Empire was also conquered by the Latins, and most of what is now modern Greek became Latin states. You had the Kingdom of Salonika, you had the Principality of the Maria, the Duchy of Athens. And what happened was this. Until the Frankish conquest, the Greeks actually written was, if you like, church Greek, a kind of classicizing Greek, and it was the only Greek that was written. But when the Franks conquered all these countries, because they wrote poetry and chronicles and even collections of law in colloquial France, the Greeks started imitating them, not just in Cyprus, but in Greece itself. And so colloquial Greek 
became a written medium. Before that, the only written medium was classical or church Greek. But from the Frankish period onwards, colloquial Greek acquires a literary dimension. And this is why this is really the first beginnings of modern Greek literature, because it begins in Crete with the Erotokritos and the Erophily, two great epic poems. It begins in Cyprus with the chronicles of Leontius Macaras and George Custronios, and of course with the Assizes, and in other parts of the Greek world with various chronicles. So colloquial Greek is actually used, ironically, for the first time following the Latin conquest of Cyprus and other Greek lands. You know, you mentioned um, that some Greek is is going to be used, I mean, the presence of wet nurses, so on and so forth. But how porous was this relationship? Um, was there was there any mobility uh, from these lower classes looking upwards to, you know, become nobles? And if there was mobility, which I suspect there was, how open were were the the Franks to this movement, um, to this upward movement? Well, according to the um, laws of the Byzantine period, you could not be a noble unless you were a Latin Christian. Okay. Now, the Greek Church until 1260 was independent of the Latin Roman Catholic Church. It was spiritually subject to the Greek Patriarchate of Constantinople. In 1260, though, the Greek church acknowledged for the first time papal primacy under the terms of the Bull of Cypriot. This meant that the Greeks of Cyprus and the Syrians who were attached to the Greek church became union Christians. They kept their orthodox customs, but they were now spiritually subject to the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, the papacy, and the Greek bishops were directly subordinate to the Latin bishops of Cyprus. Sorry to interrupt. So is this similar to like the Ukrainian Greek rite? So that they're they're still Union. yes, they're unions. They become unions. A lot of Greeks don't like to say this, but that's how it was. Okay. Now, what happened though is this: once the Greeks became unions, and the Syrians, who were members of the Greek Church, technically there was no obstacle to Greeks and Latins intermarrying because they belonged to the same church. However, the Latins wanted to keep their own ethnic identity. There was a danger that now that the Greeks had accepted papal primacy, that's because the Greeks were more numerous than the Latins, if they had intermarriage, within two or three generations, there wouldn't be any Latins left on Cyprus. They would all become Greek Roman Catholics. So what did the Latins do? They passed laws saying that even though the Greeks were Catholics, because they continued to use the Greek rites, you know, the Greek ceremonies and the, and the divine offices, they were Greek rite Catholics, and that in order to intermarry with the Latins, and also in order to be achieved knightly, that is noble status, they had to pass from the Greek rite to the Latin rite. And they did this in order to keep their Latin ethnicity. So you have two types of Roman Catholic. You have the Greek rite Catholics and the Latin rite Catholics. And only those Greeks who passed over to the Latin rite could become a noble. There were four Greek families that actually did this. The Sozomene, the Povokathari, the Singretiki, and the Kogostefan. Now, four families in the whole of Cyprus, which must have had a Greek population of 100,000, let us say, at that time. There's not very many. So very few Greeks became completely Latinized. And of course, that's exactly what the Latins wanted, because if all the Greeks became Latinized, the Latins themselves would become Hellenized. They would intermarry with the Greeks. And so you have a few Greek noble families. You have some Armenian noble families. You have a few Syrian noble families, but generally the noble families at the end of the Lucidian period, like at the beginning, are Latin. 
Now, another thing you get there in terms of upward mobility is that Greeks and Syrians can actually buy land. They can become field holders without actually becoming nobles. Because from the 14th century onwards, especially from the mid-14th century, the Cypriot crown was fighting wars against the Mamluks, against the Turks of Anatolia, and later against the Genoese. And all these wars made the Cypriot crown poorer. They needed to raise money. They did this in two ways. One was raising taxes among the nobles, a, me a measure that was so unpopular that eventually King Peter I was assassinated in 1369 by angry nobles. And the second measure was by allowing great peasants to purchase their freedom, to leave the ranks of the parakeet and become a frangomati by giving something like a, a thousand bizats. And this uh, summer and uh, slowly drops. Therefore, a lot of Greeks, at least the wealthier peasants, purchase their freedom, and some of them, they become merchants and businessmen, and they can actually purchase fiefs. So you have a class of Greek landowners who are fiefholders, but they're not really nobles, because to become nobles, they have to leave the Greek rights, and they have to join the Latin rights. So most historians, I mean, you talked religion there um, for a second, and I, I, I wouldn't say most historians, I'm going to say in, in the popular historical narrative, Religion in Cyprus is viewed at this time as a period of conflict. How vitriolic were Greek attitudes to Roman Catholicism at the time? I, I'm thinking of the Cantara Martyrs. You know, is this something that's really overstated in modern times? If we look at the past and we look at the realities on the ground? Well, let me give a brief explanation of the masters. In the Roman Catholic Church, for communion, leaven, leaven, that is, uh, you know, sort of like bread with yeast, and unleavened bread are both acceptable. Right. But in the Greek church, only leavened bread is acceptable because the leavening of the bread is supposed to symbolize the resurrection of Christ. So the Greek church rejects unleavened bread out of hand. Now, when the Roman Catholics came to Cyprus, the Dominicans who wanted to impart Roman Catholicism to the Greeks, and many of them spoke Greek, got into an argument with some Greek monks at the monastery of Kadayogisa, and they told them that Leavened bread was just as valid as, uh, sorry, um, uh, unleavened bread was just as valid as leaven. The Greeks refused to accept this. There was an argument, and the Greek monks were imprisoned. They were held in prison for several years. One of them died. But because they persisted in refusing to accept unleavened bread, in the end, they were declared heretics. Now, the punishment for heresy was to be burnt at stake alive. Now, they were declared heretics. But because according to um, um, ecclesiastical law, Latin ecclesiastical law, clerics could not pass a death penalty. The secular authorities, the nobles, Latin ecclesiastical authorities, handed the Greek monks over to the nobles who pronounced them heretics and executed. They had them burnt to the stake. Now, this martyrdom of the Greek monks took place at a time when the king was a minor. He was not of age. And you had a civil war going on in Cyprus between the nobles supporting the powerful noble family of the Ibelins and other nobles who supported the German Emperor Frederick II. So it was a one-off. It took place at a time of civil war, and it took place at a time when royal authority was weak. It's also important to notice that where you do get tensions between Greeks and Latins of Cyprus, it is usually because of the interference of Latin clergy who come from Europe. I mean, they find that the native latin clergy of cyprus are a bit lax they believe in you know the latin let live minimal appearance and they actually want to make the greeks and other groups 
accept Roman Catholic doctrine and to recognize the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And this is where you get tensions. So it's not continuous tension. I mean, the Greeks were technically uniates, but in practice, as long as they left, as long as they were left alone to carry on with their rights, they did not look for trouble. That incident that you described of the martyrs, that's a that's a really isolated incident, and it would not really be reflective of the harmony that existed at this period. Well, I mean, harmony is misleading because it suggests that they agreed with each other. I mean, it would be best to say that they agreed to differ and that they, the Latins, for the most part, you know, in religious terms, kept to themselves, the Greeks kept to themselves, and they try, they, both groups tried to avoid a clash. And I'll tell you why. The Greeks did not want to clash with the Latins because the Greek church as an institution, like all institutions, had properties and incomes. And you had Latin nobles who set their eyes on Greek properties, church properties. They tried to confiscate them, to seize them. And the only protection the Greek church had against these grasping Latin nobles was to appeal to the authority of the papacy. So the Greek church could not reject the papacy because if they did so, they would be heretics, and the nobles could seize all their properties and incomes, and they would cease to exist as a church, because no institution can exist without having income properties. Now, on the Latins, on the other hand, did not want to push the Greeks too far, because the Greeks were the majority population. They could rebel, or they could leave the island. And given that the Latin kingdom of Cyprus was practically surrounded by Muslim states, by the Mamluks of Egypt and Syria, by um, the Anatolian Turks, they did not want tensions within Cyprus. I mean, the um, Latin nobility were conscious that there were very few. Within Cyprus, the majority of the population was Greek and Eastern Christians, and around Cyprus, the, the majority of the population was Muslim. So there was a kind of peaceful coexistence. Would you characterize this as a period of financial growth? And if it is, is this unevenly divided uh, by the newly landed aristocracy and the Greeks? And would that go far in explaining why there wasn't many uh, rebellions at this time? I mean, if you if you compare it to Crete, I know that Crete uh, had many different uprisings uh, throughout its Venetian Crete period. Was because in Crete and the Peloponnese, both these areas were conquered after the Latin conquest of the Constantinople. And so the Byzantine aristocrats of these areas, the, the Ottomans, they had no bolter. They couldn't just escape to Constantinople because Constantinople was itself Latin, became mm -hmm. part of the Latin Empire. So they had to stay put. And because they stayed put, they provided a leadership for if they wanted to rebel, if the peasants wanted to rebel and the nobles themselves wanted to rebel, and quite often they rebelled in order to get more concessions for themselves. They were put and they could provide a leadership to the peasants. That's why Crete, and to a lesser extent, the Peloponnese have more rebellions than Cyprus does. But now coming to the economic question. Yeah. Under the Eusignan, um, Cyprus continued to have an agricultural economy, but there were two changes. You had a lot of Venetian, Genoese, and Catalan merchants and Provencal merchants visiting Cyprus. And so Cyprus became integrated in the Western trading networks, which, which extended all the way from the um, Balearic Islands from uh, Spain to the Black Sea, because the Genoese and the Venetians had Mediterranean-wide trading networks, certain Catalans, and Cyprus was integrated into these trading networks. This meant that Cypriot oil, grain, sugar, 
wine was all purchased and exported to Western Europe. There was a demand for separate agricultural goods. This made the nobles wealthy, but it also made the peasants wealthier. And this is why, when the crown needs money to fight its wars in the 14th century, there are thousands of peasants who are able to buy their way out of serfdom because they had made money from producing more agricultural goods. And the and nobles made money from these agricultural goods which they sold to the merchants. But there was another way in which Cyprus made money. Cyprus became a big stopover in the carrying trade. Now the carrying trade was a trade in which Western textiles, timber and iron was sent to the lands of the Muslim East. And in return, the Westerners got spices, especially pepper, silks, precious stones, and um, gold. So you have this trade. And because Cyprus is a stopover, profits are made from this trade. And when, after the loss of the last Latin possessions in Syria and uh, Palestine, Holy Land, the papacy placed an embargo on direct trade between West European merchants and Muslim countries, what happens? The West European merchants come to Cyprus, the Muslims come to Cyprus, or native Cypriot merchants, Latins, Greeks, Armenians, Syrians, they buy goods from nearby Muslim countries and they bring them to Cyprus and they make very fat profits selling these goods to Western merchants. So the time of the papal embargo is the high point of the Cypriot economy because the Cypriots make a lot of money as middlemen. And uh, so until the mid 14th century, the Cypriot economy is on an upswing. What happens though after the mid 14th century? In 1344, the papal embargo ceases because the popes and the Western Europe wish to have peaceful trade with the Mamluks. And the biggest threat, Muslim threat to Western Europe is no longer the Mamluks who rule Egypt and Syria, but the Ottoman Turks. So no embargo against Egypt and Syria, no Cypriot middlemen making profits because now the Western merchants can sell directly to Syria, Palestine and Egypt. And this is when King Peter sacks Alexandria to try and revive Cypriot trade. There's an expensive war with the Mamluks. The Genoese are angry because um, it damages their trade. And after, after Peter, Peter's death, the death of King Peter I in 1373, they invade Cyprus, they capture Famagusta, and they keep it for the next 90 years. <clears throat> and because Cyprus is Famagusta, is the main Cypriot port, Cyprus thereafter becomes impoverished. So you have a period of economic growth for the first 150 odd years of Frankish rule. And then for the next 90 odd years, you have economic decline. I was also struck by the the amount of Italians that arrive in Cyprus at this time. I mean, we have Genoese, Venetians, Piacenzans, Sicilians. Um, what brought these um, particular groups to Cyprus? I suspect is banking one of the um, the draws. Banking is one of the draws because the Italians were buying up Cypriot agricultural produce from the nobles. They were buying up luxury goods from. Cypriots and Muslim merchants who bought these goods to Cyprus and so they wanted cash and they wanted bills of exchange so you do have banking and one thing to remember is that you have Italian and Catalan merchants and even Provençal Southern French merchants who either visit Cyprus on a regular basis or are even resident. Now because of piracy Western merchants going to Cyprus or anywhere else in the Eastern Mediterranean never took their wives with them or um, other or sisters or daughters or other female members of the family. They left them at home. However, because they had, let us say, biological needs, quite a lot of them 
had native Cypriots and their girlfriends or concubines from among the slave population. And I think even today, they said that 20% of Cypriot DNA is Italian. And that's, this does not surprise me at all, because there were a lot of, they had hundreds and thousands of Italian merchants living in Cyprus and Catalans and visiting it. You had these illicit relationships between either serfs, free Cypriot women, or, you know, slaves, Greek and Cypriot slaves. And so this meant that there was unofficially, but really a lot of influx of Italian blood among the Cypriot population. Right, right. We know this from the wills, because among the thousands of material deeds, and in some of the deeds, the merchants say, I leave so much to my mistress, so much to my female slave. I free her and I give her the house. I leave some money so that my son by my female slave, so-and-so, Maria or Helen, will be, be, become apprentice to so-and-so and learn a trade. They actually provided for their concubines and for the illegitimate sons and daughters that they had by these concubines. They even provided diaries for the illegitimate daughters. So this is actually going on. It's happening. Huh. Now, was intermarriage common? so common because you see if the concubines were not Roman Catholic and the merchants were Roman Catholic they belonged to different Christian denominations and they couldn't marry unless of course as sometimes happens the Greek or the Syrian non-Latin and you know women agreed to become members of the Roman Catholic Church this did happen so there was some intermarriage but there were a lot of illicit relationships Greeks Syrians Armenians Latins Eventually, it's my understanding that a lot of these groups would, I mean, we know identity is very fluid. Um, it, it's, it's moldable, it's adaptable, it changes. And I suspect, that, uh, is this what characterizes the post-Luzinian period? Do, do many of these groups, I don't mean to say disappear, but do they eventually blend into the predominant Greek identity? Is that eventually what ends up happening? Only group who do blend in, and I've written an article about this, are the Syrian Melkites. <clears throat> you have five groups of Syrians on Cyprus. They're all Christian, but they're five different groups. You have the Jacobites, who are not Christians. You have the Maronites, who are Roman Catholics who use the Arabic rites. You have the Melkites, who are um, uh, Greek rite Christians. And you have the Nestorians. Um, who uh, followed um, a, a, a clergyman called Nestorius, who lived in the 14th century, was condemned as a heretic. And we even have the Copts who are Egyptian monophysites. Now, when Latin sources, either in French or in Latin, talk about Syrians, they're always talking about the Syrian Melkites who follow the Greek church. Now, the Melkites developed their identity in Syria and in Palestine as Chalcedonian Christians. Now, the Chalcedonians are Christians who believe that Christ has a divine and a human nature. He has two natures working in perfect harmony. And Chalcedonian Christians include the Greek Orthodox Christians, the Roman Catholic Christians, and today the Protestants. Most Christians in the world are Chalcedonian. It just so happened, though, that in the Eastern Mediterranean, the Copts and the Jacobites were not monophysites, and the Nestorians followed Nestorians. So the Melkites, who developed the identity in Syria and Palestine, developed this identity in opposition to the non-Chalcedonian Christians on one hand and to the Muslim population on the other. But when the Melkites came to Cyprus, they discovered that most Cypriots were Chalcedonian Christians. The Roman Catholic ruling class, the, the, the Franks or the Latins, were Chalcedonian. And the Greek majority were also Chalcedonian. 
And so it was very easy for the Melkites to intermarry with Latins and with Greeks. And this is, this is what they did. And this is why today on Cyprus, there are no Melkites. You have Maronites and you have Armenians because they did not intermarry, at least not continue with the Latins. But you don't have Melkites because as Chalcedonians, it was easier for them to intermarry with Greeks and Latins. This is what they did. They are, if you like, a lost minority. Now, it, when it comes to cultural exchanges, it's one area that I find incredibly fascinating. I think the, the most easily identifiable influences that happen in this period is language. The amount of French loan words in, in, in Greek, uh, Italian loan words, that is, is quantifiable. Uh, are there any other social changes that we can identify uh, today? Like, is there any continuity that we can identify from this period? And, you know, it could be even in, and this might be really difficult to, to find out, but is it possible even music, we can see continuity from this uh, time period in the 15th and 14th centuries? It's definitely continuity in music because uh, there's a very important manuscript in Turin. It's known as the Torino II manuscripts, in which you have elements of Latin and Greek music, because you have a Latin or rather a, a Savoyard French music with separate themes, such as uh, celebrations of Saint Hilarion and Saint um, uh, Epiphanius of uh, Salamis, and the composers were influenced by Greek popular music. So you have a blend of music. You also have a blend in iconography and then architecture, which I pointed out earlier. The um, Cypriot dialect of the time, the Greek Cypriot dialect, has a lot of French, Italian, and Catalan loanwords, and some of them are still present in the present-day Cypriot Greek. And the other continuity, of course, is in the cuisine. I think that uh, some elements of the Cypriot cuisine may be influenced by Italian cuisine. For example, pasticcio, which is uh, made in Italy, is the same as the Cypriot macaroni al forno. And yeah. you have references to this dish in notarial documents of 15th century Camagusta. Oh, wow. Yes, exactly. And also costumes, because the separate costume was influenced by, by at least the, the separate upper class costume was influenced by fashions in France and the Western Europe. Indeed, uh, Ludolf of Sutheim, a German traveler, says that the women of Famagusta dressed more richly than the queens of France, you know, they were the wife of the wealthy merchants. And so the latest fashions from Europe would have come to Cyprus. And the other thing that came to Cyprus, if you look at separate Gothic architecture, the most up-to-date uh, trends in the Ile de France, the area around uh, Paris and in the Rhineland, influenced the construction of Saint Sophia in Famagusta and uh, in Nicosia, sorry, Saint Sophia in Nicosia and Saint Nicholas in Famagusta, the Latin cathedral churches. So the Gothic architecture you get in Cyprus is not transmitted secondhand from the um, Latinese, from uh, um, uh, Syria and Palestine. It comes here firsthand. You have architects and stonemasons coming from the Rhineland and from France to plan the construction of Gothic churches in Cyprus. So, in many ways, they are very Quran, very up to date with the fashions, the architectural trends that you have in Western Europe. And this yeah. influences uh, separate Greek as well, of course. Without going uh, too far out of our Frankish period. Um, it, and this, the, the, my purpose of this episode is really to provide a, an overview of of this time period. Um, and so I'm not I'm not trying to go into the Venetian period necessarily, but we do know that eventually uh, Venice inherits Cyprus and Venice loses Cyprus to the Ottoman Empire. 
And if I'm not mistaken, many Venetians are banished from the island. Now, over these hundreds of years, what happens to this um, established Frankish nobility? Do they eventually blend into Cypriot society and become essentially uh, Cypriot? Well, following, well, during the Venetian period, the, uh, before the Venetian period, the aristocracy are enriched, particularly with Catalans, because uh, the penultimate king of Cyprus, James II, took the throne from his uh, half-sister, the legitimate Queen Charlotte, with the use of mercenaries who came from uh, Sicily, from Catalonia, from uh, Greece, from Armenia, Armenia even from uh, the Mamluklands, Circassians, but the majority were Catalans, and a lot of them were ennobled. So the French nobility have a big Catalan infusion under King James II, which continues in the Venetian period, because although the Venetians expel some of the Catalans, others are allowed to stay, so you still have a Latin nobility. The Venetians keep the Latin nobles and they allow them to um, have their estates and their serfs. But one thing they do abolish is the, the high court. You still have the um, court of Logesses, that any appeals are dealt with in the, the courts of Venice. So the high court, if you like, ceases to exist and the, the court of appeal is now in Venice. And following the Ottoman conquest, some of the nobles are killed in fighting some of them are captured and they're ransomed or they're not ransomed, they remain slaves. Others, they disappear, I suppose, and they either blend into the Greek population and a small group become Muslim to keep their estates. And so they blend into the new Turkish Cypriot population. So they have varying fates. Now, regarding the um, uh, other classes, I mean, the we know that you have Copts in Ottoman Cyprus, so they're still around. The Maronites survive. The small Jewish communities survive. I mean, the Greeks survive, and the, the Armenians also survive. Although in the 19th century they are reinforced by a big influx from Anatolia, so most of the ethnic groups that existed in Eusignan and Venetian Cyprus still survive throughout the Ottoman British period. I'm really glad we had this conversation because I, I find this period incredibly fascinating, and I think just the just the sentence you started off at the start of this interview describing this as a one of a of an it's an incredibly rich period man tourists who visit cyprus today the biggest monuments are the venetian walls of nicosia and right. Wall walls the latin cathedrals of san sophia nicosia and san nicholas of Augusta, together with all the other latin churches all the remains of them so apart from the, the Roman remains, the most impressive remains in Cyprus today in terms of scale are the Gothic and Venetian remains. So, and also in, in literary production, you have chronicles written in the Italian, Old French, Greek. You have poetry written in Venetian Italian, which is also translated in Cypriot Greek. You have law codes in Old French and in Cypriot Greek. So they have a tremendously diverse literary production. You have architecture including, I mean, if you go to some of the icon museums in Nicosia and in Paphos, even though the icons are called Byzantine, most of them date from the, from the Frankish period. The mm -hmm. reason they're called Byzantine is because the form of art is Byzantine, even though it's Byzantine iconography influenced by Italian, Armenian, Eastern Syrian traditions. But most of the icons date from the Frankish period, the Frankish Venetian period. So in terms of iconography, literary production, legal texts, in architecture, I would say that it could be perhaps the richest period in Cypriot history. Uh, yeah, and um, but you know, lamentably, um, if we're talking about 
visual uh, or direct interaction that you have with a lot of these landmarks, uh, most, and, and I, I, I might be wrong, but most are, are in, in Northern Cyprus, which I think it removes a lot of that immediate um, interaction that someone visiting Cyprus would have. Yes, of course, you know, you do have the walls in uh, Nicosia, the Venetian walls, but those those lofty castles on the Bendadactylos ra um, range, uh, you think of the 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 cathedrals again in in uh, Lefkosia. Uh, unfortunately, I think most don't get a chance to interact with them and and view them. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that. Well, you see, what you say is true because the biggest cities for the Franks were Nicosia and Famagusta. Famagusta is completely under Turkish control. And Nicosia has a Turkish sector and a Greek sector. And when the Turks conquered Cyprus, they turned the Latin churches into mosques, or at least the biggest ones, cathedrals, but not the Greek churches. I mean, the Greek churches, a few churches in the villages became mosques when the Greeks themselves in those villages converted to Islam. But it was the Latin monuments that were Islamized before. The other thing to remember is that the main centers of Frankish concentration in Cyprus were always Nicosia and Famagusta. So, because the Turkish occupation covers those areas, this is why a lot of the Frankish monuments are in the area controlled by Turkey. There is something, though, which is worth noting. I mean, during the British period, both Greek and Turkish nationalism grew on Cyprus. And so, the Greeks and the Turks of Cyprus identified increasingly with either mainland Greece, which became a kingdom in 1830, or the Ottoman Empire later. Republican Turkey from uh, 1923, Turkey was a republic, and so the Turkish Cypriots had a national state, a Turkish national state with to identify. And so, in many ways, the Frankish legacy was unwanted by both communities. The Greeks didn't identify with it because they strongly felt to be orthodox, they saw the Franks as uh, agent oppressors, and the Turks didn't identify with it because, uh, the, you know, the Franks were not even Muslim, they were infidels, they were Christians. So, there is this dimension as well. Right. Um, you know, I meant to ask this question. I'll ask it. I'll ask it of you now. Um, the narrative, you know, political history, it, it's from what I understand, it's pretty easy to synthesize based on the major chronicles that exist. But in, for Cyprus in particular, uh, as a historian, so I'm asking you as, as, a, pers as a personal question, um, what are some of those challenges in piecing together the social and economic history? Or are there? Because it does sound like there's a lot of information out there at times. A lot of information, but it's lopsided. I'll tell you what. It's lopsided geographically because it contains it can, uh, the information, especially the notarial deeds, which have a lot of information on the economy of Cyprus. They originate mainly from Famagusta and to a lesser extent from Nicosia. It is also lopsided ethnically because these notarial deeds are written in Latin. And they show the economic activity of the Italian, Catalan, and the uh, uh, French Provencal merchants, but not about the Armenians, the Greeks, and the Syrians. So you have an ethnic lopsidedness, you have a geographic lopsidedness, and you also have a chronological lopsidedness, because the not these notarial deeds, you have thousands from the period 1296 to 1310, you have uh, quite a few hundred from 1360 to 1364, so 1371, 1360, 1371. You have uh, a few hundred from uh, 1444 to 1458. And uh, for the rest of the period, which is about uh, three or 400 years, you have a few dozen. So you have a chronological lopsidedness, 
a geographic lopsidedness and an ethnic lopsidedness. So yes, I mean, there are thousands of documents, but uh, uh, they're not evenly distributed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nico, this has been uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, participating in this. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to um, uh, be on uh, this talk. The sooner you publish, the better. And I hope you have lots of more programs on this pod podcast. I think it's a fantastic initiative because it is releasing less known aspects of the history of Cyprus, which are very interesting and uh, very fruitful of study, to a much wider audience. And something like this podcast can enable historians to reach out to a wider interest public. And I'm glad that we got there in the end. I mean, I was really worried. It was quite hairy. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but we saw it through. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so okay. much. Have a great time. Bye-bye. You, you too. Okay. Bye.